welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, David Hook continues our series in Hebrews, sharing from Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11 through chapter 6 and verse 20. And now, here's David. Thank you to everyone who worked on the opening. The efforts are very much appreciated. Let's begin with prayer before we start the message. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity to meet together. Thank you for the scriptures and for the messages they contain. As we study this letter to the Hebrews, may you give us understanding and may we hear your message to us. Help us to put it into practice and become better followers of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Imagine for a moment that you are a physician seeing patients in your office. We can pretend there is no pandemic and you don't need to dress up in your personal protective equipment. A relatively young and previously healthy patient comes to see you. You notice they look tired and lethargic. They tell you that they don't seem to have much energy and they get tired quite quickly when they have to do anything strenuous. Now these are fairly common symptoms and there are a lot of different causes, but I wonder even without a medical education, what questions you might start out asking this patient. These are the times that I miss being able to hear from my audience. But I expect many of you thought to ask this patient questions about their lifestyle. What and how much are you eating? And how much exercise are you getting? If they answer, well, I eat a lot of carbs, like chips and pop, and I get some exercise when the internet goes out and I have to get up and reset the modem. I don't think you need a medical degree to give this patient an initial prescription. Of course, you would tell them that they need a good diet and adequate exercise. These are two very basic but important aspects of good health. We've come to a place in the letter to the Hebrews where the writer who has been bursting with eagerness to tell the readers of a novel way of understanding Jesus realizes that the recipients might not be able to grasp the significance of the message. He has been introducing them to Jesus as the high priest in chapters 2, 3, and 4, and 5, and he will go on after this pause to unpack the significance of this role of Jesus in the next four chapters. He pauses in his discourse because he realizes that his readers have a very serious symptom that threatens their spiritual health and vitality. He wants to warn them of the danger if it is left untreated and to give them a prescription to prevent it from becoming more serious. I think it's worth our time to read the passage. It takes about four minutes to read, but I think it is a, it is a significant passage which has proved difficult for many to understand. So let's listen to the writer before we take a closer look at some of the details. Vicky's going to read the scriptures for us in the New Living Translation. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. There is much more we would like to say about this, 
but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. Dear friends, even though we are talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will become true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. For example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God had promised. Now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. 
he has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The serious symptoms are identified in the first verse of our passage. The writer has noticed that these Christians have become dull, sluggish, and apathetic. Their initial eagerness to learn has been replaced by a degree of indifference to the message being delivered to them. There is a noticeable lack of growth and progress in their lives. When doctors notice this problem in children, they describe it, the condition as a failure to thrive. Growth is not occurring at the expected rate. What could be the cause of such a serious symptom in these believers? Fortunately, the diagnosis is not too hard to identify, and the astute writer is able to quickly identify the cause of their illness. It is a dietary deficiency. If you don't eat right, you won't grow right. It turns out that no one started these believers on solid food. All our mothers, and we are grateful for them and honor them on this special day, know that babies need milk. But at a certain time, you start adding some solid food to their diet, and eventually milk becomes only a minor part of the diet. If a child were to be fed only milk and never started on solid food, growth would be stunted. Christians are the same. Left on a diet of basic teachings, they will not go on to maturity. They will fail to thrive. Maturity is achieving the ability to make wise choices. We say that an adolescent is mature when they make good decisions about such things as the use of their time, their choice of activity and friends, spending and saving money, and other things. They can be trusted to decide between right and wrong. Christians need a diet of teaching that requires some chewing. They need to know how to study, discuss, interpret, and teach more complex aspects of their faith. They need to develop the wisdom to differentiate between what is helpful from what is harmful. This does not come quickly or without effort. This is a process that requires a deliberate decision to eat well. As Gary McBride reminded the men last weekend, aging is inevitable, but maturing is optional. So what was the diet of these Hebrews? They had been going over and over the basic teachings rather than going on to more substantial prayer. Let's look at a different metaphor to help us see the point. What would you say is the most important phase of a building project? And while you're thinking, I put up a few pictures of the BFA building project. Again, I'm missing hearing your answers. I can imagine engineers saying the foundation. Others might say the roof. Then I imagine that some are saying the electrical, plumbing, and heating are really important. I think I hear Jim Melnick saying that the finishing carpentry and painting are what counts. And somewhere in the back, I see the architect waving the blueprints. Well, these are all important stages, but it was a bit of a trick question because I would say the most important phase is moving in day the day when the project becomes functional. 
I remember the first service that we held in BFA. It happened even before the construction was completed. But at that point, the goal of our project was realized. If we go back and look at the foundations, they are really impressive. A lot of concrete was poured, and they are deep and massive. How much do you notice them today when you visit BFA? They are actually not very visible, yet there is no doubt that they are there. What if we had poured the foundation and then stood back and said, wow, that is a great foundation. Let's leave it at that. We'll come back every week and look at them. If we see any chips or any flakes or, God forbid, any cracks, we will work on them some more to make sure that they are in top condition. We would be so proud of our foundations that we would invite our friends and neighbors over to see them. I'm sure that would really make them want to join our group. Obviously, that would be really ridiculous. And we'd be missing the whole point of having foundations. But that seems to be what these Hebrew Christians had been doing. They had been going over and over the foundational teachings without moving forward on the project. What were these foundational teachings? There are six listed in the text, and I think they pair up into three subjects. The first deals with the conversion experience. The second relates to the call for Christian living. The third topic deals with the subject of future events and the ultimate destiny of individuals. These represent a broad overview of important foundational teachings, which the writer says have been covered enough, and it is past time to move forward. I wonder what the writer would say of BFA if he had written this letter to us. I think we need to evaluate our practice in this area. Have we moved past the foundational stage, or are we still on a liquid diet? What would be an example of solid food teaching? I think the author of this letter to the Hebrew Christians gives us a good example. The writer is focusing on Jesus. He is intent on introducing Jesus as the high priest, along with the implications for their lives of having such a high priest. Using that as an example, it would seem that to focus our future learning on having a greater, deeper, more intimate experience of Jesus would be a worthy goal. To know Jesus and not to just know about him. To increase our devotion for him and to learn how to follow him more closely. Maybe in the context of this message we could say, that is food for thought. What of the risks of, of foundational preoccupation, of staying on a milk diet or failing to proceed with the building? Ultimately, the choice is seen in the productivity of one's life. Jesus told a very familiar story about different soils. In some soils, there was no productivity because of shallowness, or competition from weeds. In contrast, the good soil produced an abundant harvest. The writer of our passage has a rather dire prognosis for untreated dietary deficiency, 
His warning has been seen as a challenge to the teaching that a Christian has a secure position in relation to God, often referred to as the doctrine of eternal security. It is the understanding that one who has trusted Jesus for deliverance from sin and death and has received new life and eternal life cannot lose that salvation regardless of their subsequent behavior. The difficulty here arises because the writer indicates that it is possible that some of his Christian readers could make the choice to turn away from God, and then it would be impossible for them to come back to repentance. The writer goes to some effort to indicate that he is indeed writing about people who have trusted Jesus for salvation. He lists not one, not two, but five indicators. He says of these people that they have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the the goodness of the word of God, and the power of the age to come. I think each of these five events is describing an experience unique to those who have trusted their eternal destiny to Jesus. Some, however, have said that these indicate that a person has just come close to trusting. We don't have time to go into detail, but let's look at just the taste experience that is mentioned twice. Some would say, for example, that to taste something means like sipping without actually completing the experience. However, earlier in this letter, the writer uses the very same word when he says that Jesus tasted death in chapter 2, verse 9. Obviously, Jesus had the full experience of death, so it would seem that when the writer says that they have tasted the heavenly gift, he means that they have had the full experience of that gift. I think the attempt to harmonize these verses with the doctrine of eternal security may cause us to miss an extremely important warning to Christians, one which we, and especially Western Christians, desperately need to hear and heed. We have already noticed in the preceding chapters a number of warnings not to fall away or turn back, but to go on with Jesus. Here again, he is making this appeal. So what does he mean when he writes that it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who turn away from God, or as the NIV says, who have fallen away. Is he saying that a Christian can lose his eternal standing with God? I don't think that he's referring to that eternal status, but rather he is addressing the quality and productivity of their current lives. The word used here for turn away or fallen is used only this once in the New Testament. It is not the word for abandon or apostasy, which can be found elsewhere in the New Testament, but rather it has the idea of stepping aside or failing to follow through on a commitment. This fits exactly with what has been said about going forward and not stopping at the foundation. I believe that the writer is warning Christians, if you stop now, you have nowhere to go. You can't go back to before the foundations report. They are there, permanent and secure. But if you fail to go forward, you will miss out on experiencing the real purpose and joy of a life committed to following Jesus. You will be, in a sense, joining the crowd at Jesus' trial, shouting, we don't want this man to be king over us. 
If we fail to follow him, we are denying his authority to direct our lives. We risk becoming a garden of weeds, our life wasted on our own pursuits, things that looked attractive but instead choked out our fruitfulness. We risk our lives becoming non-productive and useless, the loss and destruction of life's opportunity, but not the eternal life guaranteed by our faith in Christ. If, on the other hand, we choose to go on with Jesus, our life will become a fruitful and productive garden, and we will experience God's blessing and know his approval. Choosing to go forward with Jesus is a lifelong series of choices. It is said that we make about 35,000 choices a day. I'm not sure who counted those. Most of them, like whether to put on our right or left sock first, have little significance. But many are important, such as, will I spend my time alone or choose to spend it with others? Will I take time to meet with Jesus or will I relax in front of a screen? The choices we make day to day will determine our ultimate road. John Maxwell put it this way, Life is a matter of choices, and every choice makes you. Will we go forward or step off the path? Jesus referred to two roads. We often think of them in terms of choosing to trust him for eternal life or to reject him. But I would suggest that we frequently come to the junction of these two roads. We have the choice of taking the narrow way, which will lead us to experience abundant life and God's blessing, or we can choose the broad way, which leads to waste, lost opportunity, and the futility of our own efforts, the destructive life. I think that following Jesus comes down to making good choices throughout the day and from day to day. In order to make these choices, we will need the wisdom that comes with a good diet of solid food. To make bad choices and turn away from God is a serious mistake, one that this writer desperately wanted his readers to avoid. And he was confident that they would make the right choice. Why? Because he knew that they had already had a great exercise program. So even though their diet could be better, they had already begun to put to use the foundations that they had laid. They had been showing their love for God and their love for their fellow believers, and they had been doing this from the start of their new life in Christ. If we peek ahead to chapter 10, we see some examples of their exercise program. In verse 32 of chapter 10 and following, we learn that they had endured suffering because of their allegiance to Jesus. Ridicule, beatings, imprisonment, and loss of property were some of the things that they had experienced. And in the midst of this persecution, they were helping others who were suffering the same fate. They accepted this lot with joy, anticipating better things to come. The writer assures them that God was fully aware of their love for him, as demonstrated by their love for others and that he would not forget them. The writer's great desire is that they continue this work. Such an exercise program that builds on a good diet will ensure that they will find relief from the spiritual dullness and sluggishness from which they were suffering. 
in following this prescription of diet and exercise, they will be following the example of Abraham. He was given a promise by God that he would be blessed by having a multitude of descendants. Abraham didn't respond by saying, That's great, God. Could you pass me the chips and the remote? Rather, he took God at his word, rolled up his sleeves, and went to work at providing an inheritance for his offspring, even though years went by before he had even one heir. God promised these Hebrew Christians rest if they followed him in belief. Rest means security and stability. But could they be sure that following Jesus would result in the in abundant and fruitful lives? After all, the beginning did not seem to start that well with suffering and loss. Could they really trust Jesus to give them security and stability? Or should they take the path that seemed easier and more comfortable? The one that involved keeping their own home and staying out of jail. I think this would be a good point to remember Jesus' words that those who try to save their lives will lose them, but those who give their lives will save them. Jim Elliott's famous words echo this thought. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. God can be trusted to keep his promises. He is faithful. Security is found in Jesus, who as high priest is in the presence of God, interceding on behalf of his followers. As as we think of these Christians, we could again ask ourselves, how would this letter read if it were written to us? I think we could be encouraged by these thoughts. I believe that similar words could be said of the believers at BFA. Love for God and love for others is evident. I see love and concern being extended to those who are suffering. Practical help and emotional support are extended to those who lose loved ones. Gifts and encouragement are delivered to those who are ill or injured. I see people taking time to meet with the lonely, with lonely people. I know that there is a commitment to pray for others. Children and youth needs are being rehelped in Sunday school, kids club, camp, and the youth center. Aid is being given to the poor and needy here and abroad. Our representatives are being supportive to, supported to bring help to many in other communities and countries. The building and grounds of BFA are lovingly cared for by a number of dedicated volunteers. There are many involved in providing meaningful opportunities to meet together in worship and fellowship and teaching. These and others that I have missed show that the foundations that have been laid down are being used to build the church. There is an active exercise program evident here, and there is active encouragement for more participants to join in. I know that we also continue to seek new opportunities to express love for our community of believers and neighbors. I think this writer could also say of BFA that his greatest desire is that we keep on loving others in order to make certain that what we hope for will come true. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area. 
or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.